Would you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Our scripture reading prior to David's lesson is going to be from Romans 6 verses 17 through 23. There is a Bible in the pew in front of you if you'd like to follow along in, uh, in that particular Bible. That, this passage can be found on page 1003 if you're following along in that, in that Bible from the pew in front of you. Again, Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 23. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves, as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. Uh, we're reminded from Friday and over the weekend that there's a dark shadow that's cast over America. The tragic loss of life, the reminder that evil is very powerful, and the reminder that evil is something that we should want nothing to do with. We're also reminded in Psalms 46 that we serve a God who is a refuge. He is a strength. He is a present help in the times of trouble. He is strong enough to protect, and He is strong enough to guide us in the areas and the ways that matter the most. And when the mountains seem to shake and whenever all there seems to be around us is trouble, it's that reminder in Psalm 46 that the psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. I hope that you and I will focus and that we will learn whatever God would want us to learn during this time. I hope you and I will understand clearly that the loss that has been experienced is because of the force of evil. We're not in heaven. We're on an earth where there is a battle taking place. And I hope that occasions like this serve to remind you and I that we should hate evil in every form. There's always pain and loss associated with evil. And sometimes we see it immediately, but it is always there. We'd like to remind you that if you're going to be participating in the Latin America Operation Turkey, so many of you quickly took those names to try to give cheer to uh, families that are preachers throughout Latin America. Uh, you are uh, a blessing 
in so many ways and I'm always amazed at how generous you are as a congregation this is just a friendly reminder that those notes that you're going to write those pictures that you're going to send and the money if you could have that in today that would keep everything on schedule if for some reason you just can't get it in today still get it in uh, but we hope that everyone can get those in today this past week on Sunday of this past week, we looked at the fact that there was a lot of persecution that took place toward the end of the first century in the church. And that persecution was led by the Roman Empire. And thousands of people, the truth is hundreds of thousands of Christians died during that time. It's really hard for us to imagine. And sometimes because of the loss of life was so great that when we think about first century persecution, we immediately think of that. But the reality is that there was a persecution many decades before that. Just after the church began, Christians started being persecuted by the Jews themselves. One of the young leaders of this was named Saul. Saul was a man who hated Christians. He would go into their homes, into their synagogues, and he would capture them, and he would drag them out for public trial, and he would always vote that they should be put to death, and he surely counted himself successful when he watched them die. I'd like to remind you of a few passages this morning of the work of Saul. If you will turn back in your Bible to Acts, the seventh chapter. In Acts, the seventh chapter, we have Stephen, the first martyr, preaching a sermon. And his sermon, because he claims that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, stirred up so much hatred that the Jews there began to gnash their teeth. They grabbed the man and they drug him out of the city and they began to stone him. But what we find out in Acts the seventh chapter and 58, that while they were killing him, there was a young man named Saul and he didn't stand up for this man as if to say, listen, he's preaching the gospel. And that's an important term and we'll develop that term even more so tonight. But he didn't stand up and say, he's preaching the gospel, let's listen to him, let's learn from him. Instead, he allowed them to take their coats and their clothes and, and put them at his, at his feet. And it says, it was at the feet of the young man named Saul. And by the time we go just a few verses down, in the eighth chapter in verse three, we see that he's no longer the young man that's following. We see that he is the mature man that is leading. He quickly rose in the ranks. And look as we read verse three. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. And we go to Acts the ninth chapter and we get to one and two and we see another similar scene but using different words to describe it. Then Saul, notice this phrase, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters for him to the synagogue of Damascus so that he... So he found any who were on the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Notice the language here. He breathed threats and murder. Right now, if I were to say to you that there's someone who eats, sleeps, and breathes golf, you would know exactly what I meant by that. If you say, here's someone who breathes basketball, you know what is meant by that. Do you see what Luke is recording here about Saul? Saul was a man that was breathing threats and murder. Everywhere he went, what his life was about was making sure that Christians were not only punished, but he hoped that they would be annihilated and that the cause of Christ 
the way would be no more. He not only wanted to do that successfully in Jerusalem, here in this text, he's asking permission if he can have official documents so that he can go and do this in a foreign city like Damascus. And he was granted that work. Now later on, after Paul had changed his life, he talks still about this time in his life. I'd like you for you to flip over to Acts the 26th chapter. In Acts the 26th chapter, I'd like for you to notice in 9, 10, and 11 that seven times he uses the pronoun I to describe what he was at that time period of his life. Notice what he says here in verse 9. He talked about himself being contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then in 10, this I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blast me. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Notice there how he makes it clear that he drug them out and he had them shut up in prison, but yet there were times to vote and he said, I always cast my vote that they should die. Paul, why were you doing this? And notice his own description. His own description was, I was enraged against them. Paul wanted to see Christians destroyed. Do you hear that? Do you know what that means? Paul took part and God's children being put to death. Think about that. Paul took part in making sure God's children were put to death. That ought to mean a little bit more to us after this weekend. It hurts to see children die. And Paul devoted his life to killing God's children. All month we've been talking about forgiveness. And this morning we want to discuss the forgiven. Who are the ones that God will forgive? Could Paul ever be forgiven? Of these sins. We tend to do two things, each in the extreme, as we talk about forgiveness. Some are very quick to say, listen, you don't know the things that I've done. God would never forgive me. Let's talk about that this morning. But the other extreme is forgiveness is free, and in that, it's cheap. Everybody's forgiven. All you do is just let the notion of God run through your mind and just say, oh, I believe there's a God and, and God just forgives you and, and, and you're in heaven. By the way, is there even condemnation? I don't even believe in that stuff. God is such a forgiving God. I don't believe he'd condemn anyone. You see the extremes? No one could be condemned to the point that no one could be forgiven. This morning... Let's look at some basic principles and then tonight let's come back and let's look at the details of how this applies into our life. This morning, if you're not saved, I beg you to come back tonight. 
If you can't come back tonight, I beg you to give us a call. Visit with us. We'd love to sit down with you and talk with you about the most important gift that's ever been offered to you. It isn't cheap, but it is the most precious gift that's ever been offered. And this morning, if you do not know, as we just had read a few minutes ago in our scripture reading, the gift of eternal life that only comes through Christ Jesus our Lord, you're missing out on everything that matters. And so let's think about this. What would Paul say about the fact if he could ever, ever be forgiven of his sins? Let's drop over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, the first chapter. Let's notice how Paul looks at this very topic of who he was, but also who God is. In 1 Timothy, the first chapter, we read in verse 12. And I think, this is 1 Timothy 1 and 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly, abundantly with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Christ Jesus might show all long-suffering. I want you to notice this word here, pattern. That Christ Jesus might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Let's kind of put some thoughts together that, that Paul pulls through this passage. First, he says in verse 12, I just want to tell you how thankful I am. Paul, why are you so thankful? He says, you know what kind of man I used to be? And do you know that now not only am I saved, but the Lord is allowing me to work in the kingdom? Do you see how Paul puts working in the kingdom as a blessing and a part of being saved? And he says, listen, I was a man that went out and blasphemed me. I spoke against Jesus Christ. And, and the Greek would show kind of an escalation here that the English doesn't show. And then he would take it up a notch. He'd say, not only did I speak against Christ, I persecuted Christ. Remember when he was converted? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, not only that, I was just an insolent man. I created all kind of injuries. That's what I wanted to do. And so Paul says, do you realize I am so thankful because of who I used to be. And immediately he speaks of mercy. And in the very next verse, he speaks of grace. And he doesn't just speak of grace, but he says exceedingly, abundantly, that grace was offered to him. Now note this, exceedingly abundantly is Paul saying, you wanna talk about me as a sinner? In just a moment, he's gonna say, I was chief among sinners. I've showed you this escalation of what my life was like as a sinner. But let me tell you what God's grace is. It superabounds. That's what that exceedingly abundant means. His grace isn't just something low. It's not something average. It's not something high. He says his grace superabounds. Friends, we don't know anything so rich and so powerful as our gracious God. His grace is abundant. Now, because of that, it leads him to what in that time period in the first century would have been a modern proverb. 
Okay, and if you want to do another little study, maybe we need to do a, a little a, a lesson, a sermon on this sometime. In 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, five times Paul quotes modern day Proverbs. In other words, as people were converted to Christianity, and keep in mind, they weren't able to just everybody carry around a Bible like we carry around a Bible because number one, the Bible hadn't been completely written yet. The new covenant hadn't been. And so they would have to learn a lot by going and learning and hearing and then going home and orally teaching these things until they could have written copies. And so you can imagine there were a lot of, of proverbs, if you will. There, were, there was a lot of paraphrasing of the scriptures in that day and time. And so he pulls out one of their modern day proverbs. And he says, it's absolutely true. It's a faithful saying. Notice it there in verse 15 where he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How powerful is that one statement? Because see, first it proves the deity of Jesus. It didn't say Jesus began on earth when he was born as a baby. No, he came to this earth. He's God. He existed as God and he came and now we also have incarnation. He took upon himself flesh. The deity and the incarnation is taught in that statement. Second, what's taught in that statement is that the purpose that Jesus came to this earth was to save souls. Friends, we were desperate need of a savior and we talked all about that last Sunday morning and Jesus was the only answer for that. He was the lamb that was slain and now he's resurrected. And then notice the third thing that's taught in that statement. You and I are identified as sinners. That's where we are as a human race. We are sinners in need of a savior. And Jesus Christ was that savior who came to this earth to save us. And so Paul says, let me tell you, that is a faithful saying. And it's almost as if he's saying, I'm telling you, I was the chief among those sinners that needed a savior that Jesus Christ came to save. And so once he establishes that, in the very next verse, he says, my life could serve as an example. Now I want you to note something here. He doesn't use the word example. He uses the word pattern. And I think it's important that he used that word because when we think of a pattern, we think of something that can be duplicated in the same way over and over. And so over here, someone that's saying, I could never be saved. You just don't know the things that I've done in the past. And Saul is saying, his name is Paul now, he's saying, listen, you can be saved. My life is a pattern. I was chief among sinners. And the way that I was saved was not because of me. The way I was saved was because of him. And so then that leads us to say, if the one who went around killing God's children could be saved, what is it that he did? What is it that God did so that we could be saved also? Let's drop back and let's examine the text that's already been read. Let's go to Romans 6. And we're just going to begin examining this text. And then we're going to come back tonight and really dive into the rest of this chapter. But I'd like for you to see what he says in Romans 6, and we're going to go immediately to verse 17, because this is another passage where Paul uses a word very similar to the word pattern. And, and the reason that's so important is, just let me pause here and kind of set a, a stage in your mind. The world is chaotic. And with the chaos is pain, confusion, losses, destruction, 
disappointment. God is a God of order. He is a God that is consistent. He is a God who is safe. He is secure. He brings life, not destruction. He brings peace, not quarrels and fighting. Listen, God is the one who he can bring so much beauty into our life. But please do not dismiss the importance that with God, there are set patterns. There are set forms, if you will, because God is that consistent. And so that's the beauty. Paul is saying, listen, I'm an example and I'm not like a lottery, one in a million. He's saying, if it happened for me, it can happen every time to anybody else that places this in their life also. It is a pattern that we can follow. And so now we say, okay, Paul, what is this pattern? He writes the book of Romans, written primarily probably to an audience that had a lot of Jewish background, Judaism in their background. But notice what he says when we come to verse 17. He says, but God be thanked that though you were, past tense, slaves of sin, yet you obeyed, that's submission, from the heart, that's genuineness, you obeyed from the heart, what? That form, note that word form. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Over here, your life was in chaos because your taskmaster was one that had placed you in the bondage of sin. See, Satan lies to us and says, hey, if you live a rebellious life and you sin, you've got freedom. You can do whatever you want to do. You aren't doing whatever you want to do. You are in the shackles of Satan. And there may be someone here this morning that's not a Christian that says, I'm not in the shackles of Satan. You wait and see. And I don't mean that as a smart aleck. I'm saying that with all sincerity. You wait and see. You will reach a point in your life where you realize you don't have control of your life. Somebody else does. And all the things that he's gently and sometimes forcefully leading you toward are ways of destruction. It's ways of pain. It's ways of confusion. But there's another master, Lord, servant. There's another master that he loves you. He loves you so much he died for you. He loves you more than anyone has ever loved you. And he wants you to be a servant of righteousness because righteousness is consistent. Righteousness keeps us in the area of which we are under his leadership and his protection. How did we get from here to here? Submission. Obeyed from the heart genuineness. If you're a Christian this morning, are you really genuine? Would you be a Christian if nobody else in this world lived for the Lord? You would. Or is your Christianity about other people? Well, I do it because so-and-so does. I do it because so- I do it because I like that church up there at Mount Julius. It's friendly folks, and that's why I do it. Listen, there can be a lot of blessings that come out of living the Christian life, but the genuineness, when we say, I obey from the heart, we're saying, I am devoting my life to the Lord because who He is, and it's real. It's not a show for other people. It's not a pretense about something else. This is who I am. I'm the Lord's. Obey 
from the heart, from the depth of our being. It's who we are. Obey from the heart. What? And this is powerful. That form of doctrine. There is a teaching that is God's doctrine, God's teaching that becomes a form. And that word form there is like a die or a stamp where it literally cuts and shapes our life. I probably should have done this to quickly illustrate it, but I can paint a picture with some words. What if I went downstairs and we have a die cut machine downstairs and what if I took some construction paper and, and maybe I cut out with the die cast some kind of intricate design. It might be some kind of star or snowman or, or whatever it might be. And I held it up this morning and you would say, wow, David does a great job cutting things out. All right, what if I turned around and I held up a second one just like it and a third one just like it and a fourth one just like it. It wouldn't take, much, it wouldn't take long for most of you to realize David didn't cut all those out. David used a die cast to cut those out. Do you see what Paul is saying the Word of God is? Paul is saying the Word of God is a, is a die. It is a stamp that whenever individuals allow it to mold their lives, they all are submitting to the same teaching and that teaching produces the same relationship with God and it produces the same kind of servant. It produces the same kind of conviction. It produces the same kind of faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. What is the word of God? It is a die that whenever it is cut into our life, it shapes us and it molds us where we, we look into the word of God and we say, God is teaching me to do this. I said I'm going to submit humbly to the Lord. I'm going to obey from the heart. And so if this is what he asked me to not do, I don't want to do it. If this is what he's asking me to do, I'm going to do that. And what happens? You do that and you do that and you do that and you do that and I do that and all of a sudden we all start looking like the children of God. Why? Because we are cut from the same scripture. The same teaching has die cut our life. And it's beautiful because it's the trimming away that we need. And it's the putting in and the investment that we need. Without it, we find ourselves over here in chaos. And with it, we find ourselves, get this, we find ourselves enjoying a life we don't even deserve. Because it's so much more than what we could ever bring into our own life. We're enjoying it because of what the Lord has brought into our life. James illustrates this. Well, before we leave James, I even missed this in the first service. You might come back tonight and get, maybe I'll remember to make a second dose of this. This is beautiful. Look, look at the, the last part of verse 17 where he, says, where he says, they obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Notice this, to which you were delivered. Now, when you and I read that verse for probably the very first time in our life, I almost would guarantee that no one here expected that wording. We would think that we obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to us. And there are other passages that talk about the doctrine being delivered to us, so that would be scriptural. But why did Paul do this? Why did he say there is a doctrine in place and you were delivered to it? I really believe that what Paul is trying to do here is he is trying to show that there is a set teaching 
There is a set doctrine and you and I have to decide if we are going to go to it. Listen, as much as God loves you, He's not going to change His teaching to just try to butter you up. He's not going to say, I tell you what, I love you so much. I'm going to change this teaching. Can you meet me halfway? You're, you're not wanting to give up this sin. I tell you what, I'll, I'll meet you halfway on that. Let's give up just a little bit of it, but not all of it. Listen, God has a doctrine. And, and what Paul is saying is, here's this set doctrine. And he's saying, you obeyed from the heart and you took your life to the doctrine of Christ. And that die was cut. And that's how you became a servant of righteousness instead of a slave of sin. What does it look like in another illustration? Let's close this lesson this morning in James the first chapter and we'll pick right back up here this evening. Look at James the first chapter. What does this look like? In James the first chapter, we have a powerful illustration that James gives us. Let's start reading in verse 21 and we're gonna read about getting away from this life over here and, and getting to a better life. James 1 and 21, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness, what? The implanted word. See, the previous passage talked about it being that form of doctrine. And now he talks about a word that we take and implant it in us. And what's it, what's it gonna do? which is able to save your souls. How can a message save souls? When it is God's message, it saves souls because God's message is alive. It's powerful, the book of Hebrews tells us. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we're not talking about just following a man-made document. We're not talking about following a document that is, is just advice. We're talking about the living word of God. And he says, that's what can save souls. That's what can turn lives around. That's what can lead us to the free giving God. So what does it look like? Verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, now get this illustration, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. I don't think 25 is on the screen, but here's what 25 says. It's the, it's the good side of this. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's the new covenant, and continues in it, is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. James nails it with simple illustrations. And so what he does, he says, let's illustrate how important it is our approach to the word of God, that form that's supposed to die cut our lives. What is our, our approach to be? And he says, let me illustrate it like a mirror. If you're older than 10 and probably older than five here this morning, you looked in a mirror already today. And if you didn't, we could probably take time to look around and figure out which one of you didn't. <laughs> now, unless, unless you are arrogant, in vain, you only looked in the mirror this morning for one reason, to see what changes need to be made in your appearance. I mean, anybody want to raise their hand and admit, no, no, I went back to the mirror just to look again. Wow, I look great. I mean, I can't, I can't hardly leave for service today. I just can't take miles off myself. You know, you probably are not that arrogant. 
So, so what is the purpose of a mirror? The purpose of a mirror has always been to look in and say, whoa, little alfalfa going on there. Toothpaste on the corner, shaving cream, tie straight, back up, anything okay? Like one of our guys in Bible class said the other day, I don't turn sideways in the mirror anymore. Straight on, okay? All right, now... What's the Word of God? James says the Word of God is our mirror. And what happens when we look into it and we see things that need to be changed in our life? And then are we going to walk away not making any of the changes? Just walk away and even forget that we needed to make changes. He says the one that the Word of God is implanted in them, the one that their soul is saved because the Word of God is implanted in them, they don't look at the mirror and walk away and forget. They look at the mirror and make the changes in their life. Can you imagine how foolish it would be for anyone here to look in the mirror and straight up argue that the mirror is not telling the truth about the way you look? Can you imagine that? I really do not have that toothpaste on the corner. It looks like I do there, but I don't. You go to work tomorrow, you got toothpaste. People look at you strange and you're mad at the mirror. How many of us take the Word of God and we treat it like a mirror who lies to us and we try our best to say that the mirror is wrong and we try to argue with the mirror and tell the mirror how it needs to change. It's too strict, or it's not clear enough, or on and on and on. Or how many times do we look in the mirror and do not love the Lord enough to allow Him to be Lord of our life, and so we walk away not even giving a second thought to what He has called us to be. There is a pattern, and that pattern that saves is a die cut. And friends, it doesn't change. You can go and bring your life to it and pour yourself, if you will, into that mold and allow the things that God's going to cut away to be cut away and allow the things that God is going to put in your life, put in your life, but it's going to be because you humbly bring an obedient person to a sharp, living word. Or not. There's no other option. And we're not only killing our own soul, but our influence kills others. How many times have not only you walked away from that mirror? to refuse to do what God wants you to do, but then you also invited your brothers and sisters in Christ to come along and do it with you. Oh, I'm just not going to kill my own soul. I want to kill my brother and sister's soul too. But don't you understand there's a die cut? I'm not worried about the die cut. Don't you understand the mirror? You're not looking anything like you ought to look. I'm not worried about the mirror. It's my life. It's my body. I want to go where I want to go. I want to do what I want to do. And I want company with me. Anybody else want to die? Why don't we get it? 
Why don't we get what is at stake? We mourn the loss of lives physically and we just can't wake up enough spiritually to realize that even more is at stake. Forgiven people live a life that looks like forgiven people. Forgiven people live a life that looks like the forgiver. And if I'm basking in some kind of notion of forgiveness, but this weekend I looked a whole lot like the world, I've got to rethink where did I get that lie? Because I didn't get that lie by looking into God's mirror. Where did I get that lie? This morning, the principle is simple and profound. God has a pattern that He's offered to those who are forgiven. And it never changes. And it's for those who humbly bring their lives and pour themselves into His teaching. And so tonight we want to come back and see in the chapter of Romans 6, what is it that He taught that people did in order for them to receive the grace that is free, but it has never been cheap. It wasn't cheap for the one who offered it, and it's not cheap for the ones who receive it. This morning, can we help you in any way? It's the Lord's invitation. If we can pray with you, if you're ready to be immersed into Christ, be baptized for the remission of your sins, if you're ready to come back and, and repent and pray forgiveness, whatever we can do to help you, we would love to do that. Come as